You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer, your host and the editor of Campus. In June, James Cook University in Australia appointed its first female chancellor and its first chancellor of Indigenous heritage. Nairi Brown is an accomplished medical doctor and public health leader, and the move reflects not just her talents and abilities to serve the university and the wider higher education community, it also indicates growing indigenization of Australian higher education. A month after Dr. Brown's investiture ceremony, the Department of Education released the interim report for its once-in-a-lifetime higher education review. The university's accord says that having First Nations at the heart of Australian higher education would help bring long-term, positive change to the sector. To do that, it proposes urgent action on expanding funding for First Nations students, closing the attainment gap for First Nations students, and enhancing research capability for First Nations knowledges. One of Nairi's goals during her tenure is to make James Cook a destination institution for Aboriginal students. Having gone through the system herself, she knows firsthand about the racism and challenges these students face and is determined to make university a place for them. In this interview, we talk more about what she'd like to see change in Australian higher education, how academics can do a better job of researching with First Nation communities, not on or to them, and how small things like a welcome to country statement can have a big meaning when done the right way. Nye Brown, welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you as well. Just to get started, uh, we're speaking to you uh, because you have an interesting history, uh, both as an academic, as a medical professional, um, and you have just been named the first Indigenous person as Chancellor of James Cook University in Australia. Now, that's an institution that is named after someone who isn't free of their own controversy uh, around violence against Indigenous communities, but that institution is also doing a lot to make up for that history, changing names of its colleges into Indigenous names. Anyway, let's let's begin just with that. What does it mean to you to be named the first Indigenous Chancellor of James Cook University? Well, it was certainly um, a surprise even to be asked to consider applying for the role. So there's that. Um, but I think it's an absolute privilege. Uh, it's exciting. Um, it's nerve-wracking, of course, but um, I see it as a fabulous opportunity to progress issues, not just for the institution, but for the communities that it serves, for Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander peoples, for Indigenous peoples, and also to see how we can extend the reach and the scope of the institution, you know, nationally, but also then into the Pacific and, and to see what we can offer. So it's, um, it's all about open doors and, and possibilities. So it's very exciting. So reaching out, opening doors, serving the Indigenous communities better. Have you got a plan of attack? Are there, are there any specific things you would like to do during your tenure? So the plan of attack at the moment is to get my head around well, what is called business for the institution. So as with any organisation, entity, university, corner store, whatever it is, you need to ensure that you have good governance, that you are financially healthy, that you are sustainable and that you're offering great quality product, whatever that might look like. So there's all of those things I need to, um, to honour, uh, but also then how do we think about strategic work of the institution 
um, strengthening existing relationships, creating new ones, identifying opportunity. Look, there's so much that we could possibly be doing and it's only really five years. So what I would like to see in addition to the core business and playing my role in that, um, in addition to the strategic ideas that the institution, its faculties, its communities already have. So there's that. I'm, I'm really keen to strengthen the bio um, conservation work, the environmental science, the protection, you know, uh, um, environmental protection work. I think that's fantastic and I think it's increasingly attractive, particularly to our emerging, you know, um, tertiary generations and how they see the future for themselves and others moving forward and the utmost importance of environmental um, protection and revitalization. So there's that work. And indigenous knowledges can play a significant role in that. So that's how we bring then indigenous intellectual property and traditional knowledges into, we'll call it mainstream if you like, but certainly how, you know, we, we've managed to survive and persist for X amount of thousands of generations, really. Um, and whether it's so-called alternative medicine, uh, whether it's traditional practice, um, prior to and then even during colonisation and how that persists, we're, we're still here. We have so much to offer to enrich our professions and our communities, to enrich our institutions and actually to lead a lot of that global protection work. So I'm really excited about that. But there's also what we have to offer in the region because we pride ourselves on being a very strong regional institution, but how we can actually become a provider of choice for certain activities, particularly around regional rural and remote training, education and workforce development. And I'd really like to see us explore becoming a provider of choice for Indigenous peoples, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mob in Australia, but also more broadly across the Pacific and perhaps even more fur you know, further afield, because we do have a lot to offer. We have significant sort of cultural embedding um, at James Cook and in the region, very strong presence. And I think that very much influences the character, the personality and the profile of James Cook Uni, despite the name, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, but some really exciting, it's exciting work ahead. I, I don't want to belabor the point about the name too much at all, because I, I understand that is a whole other conversation. But do you think that um, tarnishes a little bit the institution's ability to become the institution of choice for Indigenous students. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've had a number of conversations um, leading up to my appointment and then sort of in the last couple of months where Indigenous peoples have in fact openly declared their dislike of the, the title of the institution and how it makes them feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So there's that and we need to recognise that. I know that there will be those that have a more traditional perspective on the names of, you know, universities and that it's been the name of the university for 50 years or whatever, um, and you have to honour that. I think that for James Cook as an individual or as a person or as a professional, there seems to be a lot of conflation about what he did and didn't do, what he discovered and did not discover. And so I think in, in many ways we're still very much uh, uncomfortable with that history. But um, 
if people are open to the conversation and they think it's time that we mature and that we consider, given that there's already been significant work around the names of our campuses um, and buildings uh, within those campuses in our multiple sites, not just in Cairns and Townsville, then I think people are really ready to have a mature conversation about how we want to be seen, recognised and, and project ourselves across our footprint, particularly as that grows. And I think it would be very attractive proposition to have an Indigenous name. Um, and I'm really excited about the, the possibility and where those conversations may lead. And I love a challenge because I know not everybody's going to be happy about that. But until you ask the question um, and, you know, stimulate the discourse, you're never going to find out. Of course. And is that a possibility that there would be a name change or an amendment to perhaps reflect the Indigenous communities that the, in that the institution is serving? Well, anything's possible, yes. My tenure is only five years at the moment. And so mm -hmm. in order for there to be any kind of wholesale change that requires, you know, an act of, you know, the state parliament, for example, it would require there to be a whole range of support for that, um, both institutionally, but also locally and within the community, the business community, you know, local residents, you know, potential students, all of that to cover. So that's a whole lot of work. So it might be that, for example, during my time, we get some of that groundwork covered. For example, I don't know if it's a general priority. I just know that people that have been interested have already approached me and those questions have been asked and I'm always willing to have the conversation. Um, so it might be that we look at that work as part of my term, but it may require that the next Chancellor takes that forward dependent upon what people's feelings are because it's not just a, an overnighter kind of activity. So, Of course not very complex but important conversations to have. Um, now, this is not the first time that you are a first. Um, you were also one of the first Aboriginal doctors uh, to graduate in New South Wales as a medical graduate. Um, why did you decide to go into medicine? You mentioned previously about Indigenous knowledge and traditional medicine. Medicine team seems to be one of these areas, I don't want to call it a battleground because it's not a battleground, but one of these areas where there tends to be clashes between kind of Western knowledge about medicine and then more traditional understanding of medicine. So why did you decide to study medicine? It's always one of those great questions, right, as to why we move into a particular field. I mean, I, I, I remember a desire to be a doctor even when I was quite young, probably about six, seven, eight. I was in primary school, I know that much. Um, and, you know, for quite some time, it, it, it didn't really occur to me as to why, um, you know, we were, you know, we'd be a bit flippant and I'd say, well, I really liked MASH, you know, the, <laughs> the show MASH. And so I thought, oh, fantastic. I want to be like, Hawkeye. we used to have a bit of a laugh about that. And I, you know, I thought about that over the years and it was, even in my career, you know, at high school, you do those sort of surveys, what kind of career would you be good at, for example? And so, you know, you answer the A's or the B's or the C's or the D's or all of the above. And my results came back apparently that I would either be suited to be a doctor or a medical professional or a health professional or a landscape gardener. So, but and both of those things are fantastic, right? So, um, you know, my, my, my parents, you know, my family, my community, they, they always said that we, we can't decide for you. 
um, and we don't mind what it is that you choose. Uh, it could be anything. But whatever it is, it has to be something that you love, that you can create a passion for um, and that you have to work hard for it, you know, because, you know, the the effort, um, you know, it, it just infuses everything with a greater value. So there's that and don't expect things to land in your lap. But if an opportunity does present itself and you feel that it's the right opportunity, then don't let that pass and just give it everything that you have. And I thought that was pretty good advice. And so I I was... I had the opportunity to apply to medicine and I was fortunate enough um, to get the chance to study medicine at the University of Newcastle. So, and I loved it. I loved every moment of it. Um, it's probably one of the most painful students they had, but you know, we all have our strengths, yes. Um, and then it wasn't until I was a few years into into my work as a doctor after graduation, yada, yada, yada. And I think... A colleague of mine was telling a story and he said he was out, we we're out remote because we did some work, you know, remote middle of Australia. And he said he was approached by one of the senior women. And she said, oi, she said, are you, are you one of those Aboriginal doctors? And he thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. And he said, yes, auntie, I am. And she said, you know that you didn't choose to do medicine. You didn't choose to be a doctor. She said, we chose you. And I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. Sometimes or often we don't we don't end up where we think we might, but we end up where we need to be. And so I'm just lucky that for me that kind of that coalesced. And so I've I've had the great privilege of studying medicine. Um and being privy to, to some of the other doors and windows that, that has opened to me. So and here I am. That's lovely. I think in professions like medicine but also teaching it is it is a calling. Something that perhaps so. chooses you because of how much how much goes into it. Um how have you incorporated um, Indigenous knowledge into your medical practice, if, if at all? Well, as an Aboriginal woman, I'm assuming that every moment of everything that I do is infused with being Indigenous. And I, again, I know that everybody's journey is different and for each individual, irrespective of, you know, their aesthetic or their, you know, anthropomorphic, you know, um, makeup, uh, they often struggle with identity. Um, and I've been lucky enough to be very confident about who I am as an Aboriginal person. So I've been able to take that wherever I am. It's my anchor. Um, as, a, as a professional, there will be aspects of, say, the, the physical environment that reflects, you know, my culture and also other Indigenous cultures. You know, I'm part of a, a global network of about 500 million Indigenous peoples. So that's quite extraordinary. And if you think about the collective knowledge that that represents, that's very powerful and it's very comforting. So, you know, and I, and I love to think of that. Um, but from my sort of, like I say, my clinic is full of Aboriginal art and Aboriginal books and language. Um, and it's not something that, you know, that is forced upon others. Um, but it just re... I think it reaffirms that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have every bit as much to contribute to the community as whether they're parents and carers, teachers, police officers, medical professionals, as anybody else within our community. And I think we tend to, to undermine that sometimes and, and um, um, underestimate the power of that. So there are those aspects. And then there's, of course... The traditional and indigenous knowledges that we bring to our practice, 
um, you know, dress it up however you like, for example. But if you talk about practices like mindfulness, well, they're, they're traditional practices from multiple cultures that have been in existence for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. And just because someone wants to slap a trademark on it and wear a pair of Hessian pants and, and make some coin from it doesn't make it any less powerful, for example, or important to, to individual well-being. So there's those things. I think that there's also, you know, from a traditional knowledge, traditional practice perspective, our core cultural determinants around respect, reciprocity, generosity and inclusion, for example, are very important to the way that we shape ourselves and the way that we interact with others. Um, as a collective, that's another, you know, component of our, our being that um, is very important. And even if you look at our community controlled health sector, we have a network of about 140 Aboriginal medical services, for example. We're comprehensive primary care environments. We provide medical, social and cultural supports and services, which is incredibly important. I think they're one of the most successful primary care models in the world, ensuring that we address not just the physical well-being of individuals and their development within their own families and communities, but we address all of their cultural and social developmental needs as well. So there's all of that, and, and whatever we bring as Indigenous peoples, I truly believe that we, in, we enrich our professions. So that is a real gift that we have, and we are willing to give of that um, at any moment. And I, I think being able to incorporate that into every aspect of how I practice as a doctor, how I sit as the chair of something, or I contribute on an advisory committee, or how I work in the community with the surf club or with my kids' school, um, I think that's important. What you just described about um, your specific community medical centers, really treating the, the whole patient there, looking at the cultural aspect of it, their emotional aspect of, of their health. Um, that sounds incredible and that sounds like an exemplary way of, of treating the whole person. Is there kind of a, a flow out of that to more you called it mainstream medicine um, outside of those communities. Have you had conversations about maybe trying to implement some of those approaches for the wider Australian community? Oh, absolutely. And I think that for some time um, there's been a growing understanding that the, these really are exemplary services in terms of them providing a benchmark or a framework whereby we deliver other primary care services, irrespective of your social, cultural, religious background. We all talk about holistic care, for example. We all talk about patient-centred care and the entire person and also the social, ecological models and how people are impacted by those proximal and distal influences. However, the systems beyond that seem very difficult to shift. So everything from policy making to resourcing. And our current systems, like I'm a huge fan of the so-called safety net approach to public health provision. Absolutely, I think Australia and the UK, you know, they have great systems for providing high quality public hospitals, for example, and other services. But other than that, we really struggle to finance these whole of person people-centred 
services because there's always the tension between private um, and Commonwealth funded, for example. What is the responsibility of the states and territories because God bless, you know, the federated approach. So there's always those tensions and it's how we manage that. Just hearing you talk about that, um, especially around mental health of young people, but then uh, patient-centered care, that mirrors how people often talk about undergraduate students in higher education. Um, any thoughts about how this approach might be able to be applied better uh, in higher education to support students and make sure that they feel that the institution is there for them for their cultural health, for their emotional health, for their academic well-being? I think we have enough evidence to demonstrate that we need to just make it so. So for anything to be successful, yes, you actually need very strong and determined leadership that are willing to take a bit of a risk, for example, and to look at the reshaping um, of some of the offerings around that for their students and staff, irrespective of what that discipline is, for example, and then look at ways that the institutional frameworks can make it happen. And of course, then there's the other requirements. So, you know, how do we then attract the resourcing and make the systems work for us such that it is sustainable? And that is the other thing. Yep. So it doesn't matter how sexy a concept is, if we don't have the resourcing to make it so, if we don't have the workforce to then create the workforce, um, if we can't maintain and sustain that over time, then we'll struggle. But it's I believe it's completely doable. And the beauty of an institution like James Cook University is it's relatively new and therefore I feel it's less risk averse or, you know, less sort of set in its sandstone ways than a larger, more established institution that has greater numbers of staff and students and faculties and and campuses and all those sorts of things. Um, Also um, a little bit nimbler and willing to try new things. That's certainly the the feeling that I get. And and having done my master's with them, I got a real sense of that and their willingness to try new, new, not new things. They're not new things, but they're, they're evidence or best practice informed. And how do you then adapt that to your context? That's super important because it has to meet the needs of the people that you're reaching out to. So how, you know, how do you take all of that on board? And I think that James Cook is really very well placed to be exploring some of those innovative approaches to how we train and educate. And really, I want to re-instill in people a love of learning, not just education. So that's another sort of challenge I've set for myself. You are a a proud member of the UN Nation. Um, I want to know what your experience was like uh, as an Indigenous woman going through the, the higher education system. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm from a part of the South Coast. Um, So my father and my grandmother's country is around the Shoalhaven, so a little bit further south of where I grew up. Um, And I went to a high school that was quite multicultural because we're near the steelworks, a lot of migrant sort of labour and really a really fantastic mix of cultures and peoples and countries. So that was fantastic. And food, by the way, that was great. So um, I had that... Uh, great exposure as a child and in primary and secondary school. Interestingly enough, it was when I got to university, and it's not a reflection of the uni that I went to, but just some of the individuals. I bet it, I think for one of the first times, I, I really experienced a kind of really, that kind of discriminatory attitude. I actually had someone say to me outright, um, 
you don't belong here and you're taking up the place of a, a deserving white student. Wow. <laughs> I, well, I was surprised by that. It did. I mean, it was just like, yeah. yeah that is shocking. I know that we're being recorded, so I won't actually um, sort of repeat my response. Sure. But I was more surprised that I was getting this at university, I thought you because I went straight from high school, so of course I was ju- I just turned eighteen, uh, you know didn't know top from bottom. Very excited about the opportunity. I had to move out of home to move to another city, so all of this was going on for me. But to have that in an environment where I thought this was going to be about smart, talented people that were really keen on you know meeting others from different backgrounds and you know so there so there was that. But of course, that explicit those, level of racism in that yeah, environment. Just, and I don't even know if they saw it. It was ridiculous. But it was, but of course, those sorts of things only just encouraged me to, <laughs> to, to stick it out. So it didn't bother me in that sense, but it did kind of surprise me in, in that way. And, um, and it stuck with me. And just another just ridiculous commentary along the way that I really paid very little mind to. Um, but, you know, but other than that, like I said previously, I had a ball at university. I met great people, great educators, um, fantastic clinicians. I and you know I and I maybe I'm I'm recalling this through you know rose coloured sort of haze of nostalgia, but because I'd always wanted this opportunity, and it had it had come to me. Um, I just I made the most of it, and I I had a ball. I'd do it all again. It sounds like you um, are a person of resiliency and forthrightness, which is great. Um, I imagine not a lot of Indigenous students or Indigenous young people who are considering university maybe have that level um, of go-get-itness or family support to pursue a higher education degree. Um, And I know that um, Australia is a bit... um, further ahead than other nations that have large indigenous communities and um, giving the country statements whenever there's a a large gathering or just acknowledging the sacred lands of the indigenous people that the institutions are on. There have been some criticisms that that's kind of paying lip service to the indigenization of higher education and maybe there's more that actually can be done to support these communities. Would you agree with that And, and what else do you think institutions need to do to support indigenous young people to come up through their institutions wow there was a lot in there are about three different questions in that (laughs) i'll try and remember some of those components but um i'll just go back to the say the acknowledgement or welcome to country um i'm not huge on symbolism in the absence of content or substantive content and change so there's that but if you if you're going to um I don't think mandating welcome to country makes people feel comfortable or even inclined to participate, so there's that. But if you are going to do it, then mean it. Don't just follow some, you know, dry script, read it out and then move along. It's important to understand the why of the acknowledgement and welcome to country. It's no different than if you, you know, rocked up at, at someone's home and knocked on the door, for example, and introduced yourself. It's a very simple concept about respect and an acknowledgement that you're coming to the home of someone else and that someone else has just so happened to have been here for about 65 to 70,000 years. So there's that. But say it like you mean it. 
and understand why there's a desire for you to, to say that and to educate ourselves a little better around the concept of welcome to country. And I, I think people can tell whether there's a certain passion about it or a real interest in getting to know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I think that's really important. And just and add to it, you know, add your own narrative, for example. Whether you know it or not, we all have a cultural history and, and understanding that is very much a part of that cultural competence conversation, which is about understanding your own background, your own heritage, your own history and origin in order to then better understand the people that you engage with. And so that should infuse every aspect of our lives, personal and professional. So there's that. And so how do we then um, support and encourage other young people? So the bonus of being one of the crusty old um, Aboriginal doctors now, for example, um, is that it's it's part of our responsibility to be role model, like positive role models as best possible, and, and none of us are perfect, but also to provide um, or to assist in articulating those pathways for people that may have an interest in these fields. And there is so much talent and potential in our communities. And you would find, you know, a politician asked me one time, you know, about, you know, what's it like to be, you know, they said, oh, the first of this or have done that and to be, you know, to be special. I'm actually not special at all in that sense. And if you were to provide or to ensure the provision of the same kinds of opportunity that I have been blessed with, you would find that our talent and our potential is abundant. And I'm not an exception, I'm the rule, right? There's so many, there's smarter, younger, better looking people out there, but they need to know that there is a place for them here. So, uh, you know, the crusty olds like me being able to articulate some of those pathways, hopefully be positive role models to them, but also provide that buffer so that they cannot get on with the business of being themselves, exploring who they are, um, being confident, building that resilience, um, not having to answer all the daft questions about Aboriginal affairs and politics and things that potentially are beyond them and let us, you know, take some of that on board for them. And then when they graduate and they find their feet and they're feeling confident and they're exploring their own futures, then they can delve back into to the boggy marsh when they feel they're ready. So there's all of that. And that's the responsibility not just of other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but for all of us. And we all play a role, no matter how small that is. We often underestimate the power that we have within our spheres of influence. And so if you're a positive influence within your own sphere, they then take that. You know, so it's it's it spreads throughout our social networks such that understanding and inclusion and respect becomes the new social norm rather than division and exclusion and isolation, which nobody wants. I think a lot of universities' intentions of that inclusivity of Indigenous people is also reflected in how they engage with them in academic research. Um, I wonder if there are ways that you would maybe improve how academic research is done with Indigenous communities right now to make it more equitable and beneficial for those people. Well, it's really interesting because, of course, in Australia and also in, in a number of other nations, so we work with international networks of Indigenous researchers, for example, another one of the magnificent bonuses of being part of who we are. So 
we've worked hard, long and hard on creating the frameworks or influencing the frameworks, for example, for national approaches to research with Indigenous peoples, not on Indigenous peoples, not to Indigenous peoples. And that's everything from sort of the ethical frameworks, the cultural frameworks, um, but also then some of your, your legal and other requirements. Everything from um, consultation uh, and participation and creating free prior and informed consent processes that are consistent with where communities are at, what their language requirements are. We still have thousands of languages and some of our communities, English is the fourth or fifth language spoken. So to expect someone then to want to participate in complicated, you know, clinical research by signing a piece of paper that's written in English and it's jam-packed with all sorts of jargon and, and mumbo-jumbo, um, is unreasonable and actually unethical. So we, we've taken into consideration that and we've been very fortunate that, um, say, the NHMRC, our National Health and Medical Research um, Council, has taken that on board. There's the ARC, there's the IATSIS framework for research with Indigenous peoples. So there are a number of ways by which we've influenced the actual requirements of researchers in order for their, for their research to be considered competitive, if it involves Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, they actually have to start the conversations prior to their applications. They have to demonstrate their consultation and engagement processes. They have to demonstrate that this is in fact a priority for the people that they want to, you know, conduct research with. Um, and we also have a framework, say, for genomic research with Indigenous peoples that we've developed that's a combination of your ethical, cultural and human rights standards. Uh, and that includes things like benefit sharing. So, you know, most people, including Indigenous peoples, understand that there are some research activities that they know won't benefit them immediately, if ever, or even their children or families, but the contribution then socially it has great potential and they're, and they're more than happy to participate. So, but you need to be clear about that. There's also um, current and future use of biological materials, for example. There's the notion then of repatriation um, of samples, uh, both, you know, existing or historically collected as well as contemporaneously. So there's that. Um, we need to be very clear that, in fact, if we're conducting a research project, that if we take material or even, you know, information or knowledge, they're all gifts and part of a collective that we remain custodians of that, not owners. So all of those. And I think, um, oh, sorry, I've lost my, my track around one of those, but I think particularly for the genetic and genomic research, there's really some beautiful narrative that comes out of communities that reminds us that, um, and it's been coined, for example, as a story in the blood. So if you're giving of biological material, say, and you could be just looking at stuff for diabetes or blood sugar or, you know, um, familial predisposition or whatever, but that story doesn't belong to one single individual. That story belongs to every member of their family and their community and then their extended family, which is a beautiful way to think about it. It also then means we need to think very differently about our processes of consent. It's not enough to just be asking one person, for example. And particularly, there's a real, a real concern about the potential commercialization 
of some research findings for the benefit not of communities but of companies and other big business that will turn turn coin from it. So there's all of that. So there's the collective notion and benefit and all of the other beautiful sort of inclusive notions of research and where some of the, you know, the translation and implementation activities may then lead to. And so Indigenous peoples actually lead in this space and the work that they've done is just extraordinary. It's very interesting and I think, again, could be a gold standard for the way that, you know, research is considered and conducted. Again, I'm seeing lots of applications that could be applied to that, to, to any sort of community Absolutely. outreach Absolutely. And again, that is part of our gift. You know, knowledge, you know, the, the senior people will tell you, and again, irrespective of culture, but knowledge is a gift and gifts are for giving. They're not for hoarding. So the, the, and people who often have the least are willing to give the most of themselves and their communities and not necessarily in sort of tangible ways. In So they're not, you know, can of beans or whatever, that's fine, they'll prepare a meal for you. But somebody's time and their story and their knowledge and their history, those things are priceless. Hmm, that's beautiful. Um, just my final question for you, Nye, about uh, the, the current work. You've touched on a little bit about um, the ethical and legal considerations around genomic research. That's part of your current work right now. Do you want to tell us any anything else about um, what you're currently doing on that project? Oh, I, I think there are much sort of smarter people that are dealing with that now. But one of the one of the concerns that we wanted to create some of the frameworks for protections was. Um, institutions or individuals or other research sort of collaborations looking for differences based on race. So, you know, now there may well be certain protective or risk factors that are associated with um, people that identify maybe as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or other Indigenous peoples. But race is one thing culture is a social construct and people often don't understand the difference so there's that but if if we're going to be doing those kinds of research activities then they need to be at the behest of indigenous peoples they need to understand what those projects mean they need to have a, a sense of control and custodianship not just of the samples but of the information of the translation and understanding what that then means in the context of their lives and their cultures, not just from that cold, hard kind of biomedical perspective. So there are, we have an International Indigenous Genomics Alliance. So people from mainland US and Hawaii and Canada and Australia and Aotearoa, for example, we all get together and, and, and talk about these fantastic sort of ideas and the, the science is amazing. It's, um, and we have so many talented clinicians in this space. And just to plug for someone who um, is related to me, but big bad Al Brown. So he's currently the Professor of Indigenous Genomics at the Australian National University. So he's leading some fantastic work and also some fantastic collaborations and relationships around this work and how we progress it in the best interests of Indigenous peoples led by Indigenous peoples who have the scientific expertise 
to know how this works. So people can't have these conversations without us anymore because we actually understand what's going on and we can actually lead in this space and contribute greatly for our mob but also anyone else who um, can potentially benefit from the work that we undertake. Nye, thank you so much for this conversation. This has truly been a gift um, to the podcast and our listeners. Uh, really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very generous. Thank you so much, Don. I really appreciate it. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.